0: Hi, I'm Carla Appy, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spent a very pleasant hour talking with Mark Smith about his new book, From Sight to Light, The Passage from Ancient to Modern Optics. This came out this year in 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, in every respect, this book is magisterial. It is an amazing work that covers two millennia of history in a broad range of fields, the arts, literature, the sciences, optics, mathematics, and it takes us from the earliest work or the sort of emergence of um, work in optics as a science all the way to the 17th century and beyond. So what the Book does is chart, as the title would indicate, a move from um, kind of explaining optics in terms of sight to explaining optics in terms of light. This is a shift in analytic priority from ancient to modern optics that really hinges on the work of Kepler and the transformations that the work of Kepler in building on and extending um, previous work by a range of scientists had, um, both in terms of optics and also more broadly in terms of the epistemology of vision. So it's a really interesting, um, it's a very, very well read researched book, and it's a book that really Very clearly guides readers through the mathematical underpinnings of many of the theories that are discussed here, without it feeling too um, obtuse, right? Without it feeling like, oh my gosh, there's mathematics. It doesn't do that, but at the same time, it gives you um, grounding for understanding the mathematical bases of the theories that Mark is giving us. So, um, it's a really, really interesting book. I think this is absolutely a must-read for anybody interested in the history of vision of optics um, and perhaps of light and color and we had or at least I had a good time talking with him about it so um, I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book and I hope you enjoy the interview thanks for listening I'm here today to talk with Mark Smith about his new book from sight to light welcome to new books in science technology and society Mark and thanks very much for making the time to be with me today
1: well thanks for having me I'm glad to be here
0: So, could you start us off, Mark, by saying just a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of science, and what brought you to the field of optics in particular?
1: Well, the history of science probably came from my having gone to the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and having had to read, you know, do geometry through nucleus elements, actually, Ptolemy, et cetera. Uh, And I guess that sort of interested me in, in the history of science. I then spent three years in the Army and got out and decided I didn't want to make a career of that, so I went to graduate school, and everything was accidental from there on. I went to, to Wisconsin to go to a history of science. I had no intention of doing optics at all. I was going to do atomism, and because I studied with Dave Lindbergh, I ended up doing optics despite myself and found that I actually enjoyed doing it.
0: Great. So the book that we are talking about today focuses on the passage as the subtitle of the book indicates from ancient to modern optics. Now as the book lays out early in the preface in the history of optics two concerns have long been a priority explaining sight and explaining light. Now as you describe here in the shift from ancient toward modern optics there was also a shift in the analytic priority from sight to light. So the book takes as its formative question Why this particular turn at this particular time? And it's ultimately going to argue, and we'll get there hopefully by the end of our conversation, that Kepler's theory, his theory of retinal imaging in the 17th century in particular, was instrumental in this turn. So um, how did you come to decide to work on this particular topic? What brought you to a decision to make a book-length object about this particular topic?
1: Well, uh, my experience as a grad student long, long ago, uh, when uh, history of science is pretty uh, internalist, uh, I, I was, for my day, something of an externalist because I was a Poiré fan and I, uh, uh, I was interested in philosophy. And it became clear to me, anyway, as I was working on optics, particularly with Vitolo, who was a, a, a Latin sort of disciple of uh, Ibn al-Haytham or Al-Hassan, it became clear to me that there were lots of epistemological issues involved here and that, that, that really it looked to me as though optics, as it was understood then, was really a kind of a way station towards understanding how it is that we get to know stuff by seeing it. So those philosophical issues really, you know, came... They, they caused me to be really interested in optics. I wasn't particularly interested in the technical aspects of geometrical optics or even physical optics, but I really, I really became interested in how it all fit together into a seamless whole of of explaining from light uh, in luminous objects all the way to our perception and conception of the light uh, that brought me to this for, you know, over a long period, particularly my work on al Hasan.
0: Now, you begin the introduction by situating your work with respect to David Lindbergh's work in Theories of Vision from Al-Kindi to Kepler. This is a book that came out in 1976 and was reissued in 1981. So why is it important to do that? Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of situating your work with respect to Lindbergh's book? And and perhaps say something about how your work importantly differs from Lindbergh's project.
1: Sure. I mean, Lindbergh's book has been canonical for, you know, since its publication. And and rightly so. He was, a, he was an exceptionally, well, yes, he was. He just died recently, unfortunately. He was an exceptionally meticulous scholar, had really good insights, could take really complicated things and make them fairly simple. And I think he did that, uh, a par excellence in that book uh, and it's not a book simply to dismiss as well it's obsolete because it's 40 years out of date or whatever uh, so I I really felt that I owed a, a serious debt to it because he provided something like what I call the backbone of what I was doing where I think he fell short even though the title says theories of vision from Kindi to Kepler was that it really wasn't about vision it was about what happens in the eye and To me, uh, and he was very explicit that he was not going to pay attention to all the psychological stuff that comes after that, all the perceptual issues, uh, because those weren't really the main thrust of it. And from very early on, I disagreed with him about that, and I continue to disagree with him about that. And that's what informs my book and makes it different from his. I mean, among other things. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of literature that's been written, details that have emerged that he didn't have access to. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. Now, as we move from the introduction to the chapters, we move um, into this series of case studies and moments in this very broad-ranging history that you've accomplished here. I mean, it's an amazing study um, for many reasons, but in part simply because of the scope. You're covering such a broad range of topics, and I think two millennia, right, worth of time. Pretty close. right. So we start with early um, optics as a science and with the Greek and early Greco-Roman background in chapter two. Early thinkers, as you describe in uh, in this chapter, were ambivalent about the status of light, the ontology, the ontological status of light, and its role in vision. There was a fundamental dichotomy that you're describing in this chapter between, on the one hand, mathematical optics, and on the other, philosophical optics. Now, philosophical optics are um, manifest in part in the work of Aristotle. And you begin the chapter by talking a little bit about the importance of Aristotle's ray theory, his visual ray theory, and specifically his explanations of two concepts that are going to be really important throughout the book and so I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about them and my, my cat is also meowing and asking the same thing she's going meow meow extramission <laughs> meow meow intromission what is extramission what is intromission and what do they have to do with Aristotle so can you maybe take us into this part of the book by introducing Aristotle and specifically what's ray theory what's extramission and what's intromission and why do we need to understand these things
1: well I start out, and I think actually many people probably find it really rebarbative what I did in the beginning, because I start out in a uh, uh, semi-detailed description of Aristotle's explanation of the rainbow in the uh, third book of the Meteorology. And I point out that the way he explained it was by using rays, that is uh, 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 an emission from the from the eye, an emission of, of ocular light. We're not sure what he would mean by that. He calls it opsis, which just means eye stuff uh, out of the eye. Always rectilinearly. That is, they go in straight lines. So this this emission goes in straight lines, uh, and it it bounces off. It reflects off of raindrops to the sun at particular angles, and those angles will determine what color it is. I don't want to go into details, but the, 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 the key things that come out of that are, A, that somehow or another optics, and by that I mean visual theory, will be determined mathematically by straight lines. That is, geometry will be the key to understanding how how vision works. And uh, the the other thing is... There are actually laws that depend on that, and one law is the law of reflection. His law is absolutely incorrect. He has a, a kind of a ratio that makes no sense at all, and it it, it it flouts the equal angles law in reflection, but he's working toward it. So in a sense, with Aristotle, uh, with his account in the uh, meteorology, we have what I think would be, you could call, embryonic uh, uh, ray theory and and ray geometry as as it's developed later on by people like Euclid. On the other hand, in the De Anima and the De Sensu and other works t- to deal with vision per se, um, Aristotle is very clearly an intermissionist. That is, he thinks that something comes from outside into the eye for you to see. That nothing is nothing goes out from the eye uh, to, as it were, latch onto or touch the thing, and you know from that touch you get the visual sense of the thing where it is and what it is etc uh and his theory because it's intermissionist i think brings in an immense amount of psychology it's an extremely rich and sophisticated sort of analysis that starts with the object's color and light is 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 a little odd as a catalytic agent it, it renders transparent media tr- actually transparent and allows then the color to pass to the eye uh And so that's kind of why Aristotle is so key in this, because he represents both ends of of two very important positions in ancient optics, namely whether something goes out from the eye or whether it comes back in. And when I say ancient optics, I mean that was still an issue up to the time of Kepler. Great.
0: Now the chapter explains this and has some really wonderful accounting of the um, theories of color and color perception specifically as well. So I just want to mark that listeners who might be particularly interested in histories and theories of color. The chapter then also goes on to explain um, in detail a case study from the other um, sort of end of optics. So if Aristotle and also Plato represent philosophical optics, we also have a really wonderful account here of Euclid um, who represents mathematical optics. And you talk about the Ray theory of Euclid, you talk about the importance of his use of mirrors as well. So I'll just mark that because we're going to come back to the importance of mirrors um, which wind up coming up again and again and in, in some really, really interesting ways as we get further into the story. So as we move from, and we're going to do this at a rapid clip, right? There's a whole lot more we could talk about, but let's move to Ptolemy. Now, as we move from this early stage, we move into a chapter that takes us into um, Ptolemy's account of visual perception. Now, for, in terms of his notion of vision, he, you explain his notion of visual radiation. So there's radiation emitted from a point in the eye that forms a visual cone. And this becomes important insofar as you're taking us into Ptolemy's accounts of reflection and refraction. So can you maybe give us kind of a brief snapshot, if possible, of these theories of reflection and refraction? For the total neophyte, um, what is important about Ptolemy's theories about these two issues, and what differentiates them?
1: Well, the main differentiation, but let me me go with this again. Let me try with with reflection. So if the eye sends stuff out in straight lines, let's just take one ray. And if the eye sends a ray out to a reflecting surface, and if it's a let's make it a plane surface because that's the easiest to understand. So we have a plane mirror. We're all used to those. Uh, I'm looking at one right in front of me. My my blank screen right now. Um, that that ray will reflect off the surface at equal angles. Or to put it another way, if I were to draw a perpendicular from the point at which that ray strikes the mirror, it will form a particular angle with that with that, it's called a normal, that perpendicular. And the ray will then uh, bounce off. And and I I do mean literally bounce off because the term is reverberatio in the Latin uh, at exactly the same angle with respect to that perpendicular. Uh, Refraction differs from that only insofar as instead of bouncing off the the mirror, in, in other words, instead of being entirely and completely resisted by the surface, the ray is allowed to pass into and through the medium that that surface uh, is the interface of. Uh, And if it's a denser medium, that is, say, I'm in air and my my ray passes into water, then it will be bent or or deflected toward the normal. But it won't be deflected toward the normal at the same angle. So there's a difference in angles. So the big question for, for Ptolemy was, how do we measure the angles in, in in refraction? We know how to do it in reflection, and in fact, he gives us a nice little, it's a very simple uh, but quite uh, uh, ingenious experiment to prove, uh, ocularly, that is, you know, empirically that that in fact, the uh, equal angles law does hold. The issue with re- re- refraction was that he had to measure or try to measure uh, how those angles are. Uh, 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 you know, how they correlate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, there are a number of ways you could, a number of possibilities you could have, and I, I'm not going to go into details about what I think he, he thought his possibilities were. I think he was drawing on his uh, exper- experience as an astronomer. Okay. Uh, and so he had an apparatus, a fairly simple apparatus, where, for example, I would stand in, in air, uh, I would look down at a particular angle, and then into water, and I would then measure the angle uh, uh, where, where the, the object appeared to be a straight line with what I'm looking at, and I would place that object under the water, and I would find out that it was actually not where I thought it was, but a little bit below it. That is to say that the, the uh, uh, light had refracted uh, towards the normal, and if I have a graduated uh, uh, disk, which, which he used, in fact, Divided into degrees, I could actually measure what the difference in those two angles was. And he gave us tabulations for air to water, air to glass, and water to glass. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you talk in this chapter, um, I think, really interestingly about a theme that, again, will come up later on, but it takes on particular resonance here. And this is the importance of illusions, visual illusions. Um, And there's some really interesting material here um, that gets into Ptolemy's interest in visual illusions, and in sort of thinking about visual perception as misperception. So I won't ask you to talk too much about that now, but I just want to kind of mark that for listeners. It's a particularly interesting part, I think, of the chapter, and we'll come back to that issue. So as we move from Ptolemy to the next chapter, it becomes really obvious here, um, at least to the reader, that we needed to understand for various reasons, Ptolemy's account in order to understand the importance of what changes as we move from Ptolemy afterward. Optics after Ptolemy uh, manifest, as you put it here, a kind of shift in focus. There's a shift in focus from Ptolemy to later stuff toward what you call the physics and psychology of visual perception. Now, When we move into this issue in this chapter, you move us into a discussion um, and a description of Plotinus's theory of visual perception. Now, this becomes super interesting for many reasons, but in part because he's really interested, Plotinus is, in the human soul. And you have this wonderful account here of the ways that theories of the human soul are related to um, ideas of perception and cognition. So could you talk a little bit about that, the importance of the soul Um, to vision and perception in this part of
1: the book. Yeah, I don't want to get too deeply into the metaphysics and and cosmology of of, of Plotinus, but uh, for Plotinus, the ultimate manifestation of reality to us, uh, and and the ultimate manifestation of reality, the creative principle of the world, is nous or or intellect. Uh, And that's, that's soul, that lives in soul. Uh, and and the the entire world is ensouled uh, in one way or another, and that's the organizing principle for all things in the world and all of the collections of things in the world. And we are special in that we have a particular sort of uh, 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 s- connection to that 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 uh, super intellect through our souls, but we're also immured by our bodies into the, the lesser world. So we're kind of, we're, we're a, of a twofold nature. Uh, and, and perception, on the one hand, is a, a lower form of, of activity, if you will, than, say, intellection, knowing. Uh, and yet, somehow or another, it, 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 it has some connection to knowing and, and, and the goodness, the, the perfection of knowing, insofar as it's driven from above. So all perception comes through and from us, not from things into us. We are, we are always the actors. We're not the recipients. And that's really important later on uh, uh, because that becomes resisted against, I think, by people like, well, later, later uh, uh, thinkers who are influenced by Plotinus in many ways. But I think at that point, one of whom would be St. Augustine, for example, They draw the line and they won't admit that. Mm -hmm.
0: So, right. So it's uh, really interesting in this chapter insofar as you talk about some of these later commentators, right, and the ways that they're interpreting Aristotle's theories in light of and in the framework of these ideas of Plotinus that you've just started describing. Now, in this chapter, you also talk about um, some of these later commentators insofar as their work is manifest in Arabic texts. And you mention in this chapter the importance of the translation movement and movements, uh, plural, to your story. So could you talk a little bit about that in, in whatever respect you feel is most important for us to understand in order for us to understand what's to come?
1: Well, I don't think the importance of it could possibly be overstated. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing in a very short order with the help of a very few people one of the key figures being Hunain ibn Ishaq, the, the with the help of of not only caliphs but also various noble families, you know, people of of, of worth, and particularly in Baghdad, this is uh, under the Abbasids. Uh, there's a massive translation movement, and basically every pretty much what we have today of the classical heritage, not all of it, but pretty much all of it. Uh, was translated by, you know, the end of the 10th century, uh, starting really in the early 9th century with Hunayn and, and Al-Kindi was, was one of the great inspirations in this. Uh, just a massive project of, of translating works from Greek, and also I might say, it's not just Greek work, it's also Persian works and and. and you know, works from other, uh, uh, other cultures, not just Greek, but Greek seemed to be pretty central to it, uh, that uh, uh, provided uh, Arabic thinkers from Al-Kindi through Farabi, through Avicenna, through you, you, you name it, with an immense amount of grist for their own intellectual mills. And what they did with that and, and was, was to transform it in, in, in fundamental ways. Uh, in incredibly sophisticated ways, both philosophically and scientifically. So what what comes out, for example, of Ptolemaic astronomy by the time of the Moraga school and Al-Tusi is far more sophisticated and far more to the point than what Ptolemy had managed to do. Uh, uh, Mathematics, et cetera, and then, of course, optics, too, because uh, at first, you know, with with, uh, uh, Al-Kindi, Al-Kindi, Hustab bin Luka, etc., they were fairly primitive. They were very smart, but they didn't really have the sources. But as the sources percolated in more, then you got people like, well, my hero, of course, is Ibn al-Haytham or or, uh, Mm -hmm. al-Hassan. And, and of course, uh, Ibn Sahal, who, as Rushdie Rashid claims, and I think quite rightly, even though a lot of people would like it not to be true, uh, actually did, in a sense, use the sign law, or at least his work implies the sign law of refraction. Mm-hmm.
0: And in fact, Al-Hassan's work um, really forms the heart of and the basis of the next chapter, so it's a perfect segue. Chapter 5 um, is called Al-Hassan and the Grand Synthesis, and you take us through some really important elements, not just of his work, but also of the way that his work has been understood and the way that your analysis is really um, challenging that historiographical understanding. So to get us started here, for listeners who may not be familiar with al-Hassan and his contributions, what are some of the most important markers of the way that al-Hassan's work really differed importantly from um, the work of the people we've been talking about?
1: Well, of course, the key uh, and the key to, to the difference between him and, say, Al Kindi or Hunain ibn Ishaq or Euclid or whatever is that he denied any kind of visual uh, emission, that is, extramission, that anything goes out of the eye. Uh, he argued that it was all light or luminous color coming into the eye. Uh, and his argument in favor of it, people say that he proved uh, that, that this was the case, and that's just not true. He didn't prove it, but what he did was made a very simple and rather compelling argument. If you assume that, that something is sent out from the eye to touch the object, to grab it, or to to, to 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 palpate it visually, to get a sense of what it is visually, then it has to bring that stuff back. Why bother, why waste the, the effort and time to have it send something out when you can just assume that something is sent directly from the object into the eye? I mean, that's basically his argument. And it's a very compelling one because he's a very smart guy. Uh, so that's the biggest difference. The, the problem is that if you look closely at his Kitab Aminathir, or his, his uh, Deus Spectibus, as it was known in Latin, or just Book of Optics, um if you look closely, you'll see that it is a an extensive and elaborate commentary on and critique of Ptolemy's optics, uh, and that's where I think I differ from virtually everybody. Is that basically my argument is that he did not overturn ancient optics, and he did not overturn ancient optics in the form of Ptolemaic optics, which involves the visual you know the visual cone as you described it and radiation out from the eye, rather rather than than overturn it, he perfected it. And he perfected it by changing the direction of of radiation, and that's all that really happened, except for for his experiments being uh, uh, more complex, more sophisticated than Ptolemy's, and uh, his analysis being far, far more sophisticated, his mathematical analysis. But when push comes to shove, everything depends on the visual cone his, his th- that visual cone is now translated by him or transformed by him into a cone of radiation, but it's mathematically exactly the same thing. And it does mathematically exactly the same thing that Ptolemy's cone and Ptolemy's rays do. So there's virtually no difference mathematically between the two theories.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned here in this chapter, and you may have been alluding to this um, just before, is that there is a kind of prevailing, or if not prevailing, uh, popular, common assumption or characterization of al-Hassan's work um, that holds that he was performing kind of the equivalent of modern experimentation, right? And you're really challenging that here. So could you maybe speak a little bit to that? Because I think that's an important point um, for us to understand in the larger context of the history of and with experimentation.
1: Sure, I, I I don't want to go into massive detail, but but what I think I show fairly well, I don't know. I think I show it compellingly, but of course it convinced me uh, that that uh, these experiments that he describes and he describes them in great detail. He describes how to, how to manufacture the apparatus, its its exact measurements, but it, it, it's quite detailed, and these are obviously controlled experiments. That my argument in both cases, and I won't describe the apparatuses. My argument is that, in fact, he didn't perform these experiments. He couldn't have performed the experiments because he couldn't have built the apparatus to the to the standards that uh, of accuracy that were necessary to have uh, uh, validated the kind of experiments that he was doing. Uh, he he, it would have been impossible. It would be impossible today to have gotten the accuracy that he demanded. And so my argument is that these are really elaborate thought experiments. They're not, they may be based on experiments that he actually did crude, cruder experiments that he did. But I think they're idealizations. They're not real. Whereas I think modern experimental, you know, uh, 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 Normals of uh, Norms of accuracy, uh, 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 error, you know, built-in uh, standards of error, et cetera, are, are, are key to modern experimentation and they don't exist in his. And moreover, I don't think he could, I have other reasons to think, for example, in his refraction experiment that he didn't do it because he didn't seem to recognize what's called the critical angle, which is when you send, uh, uh, when, when light radiates uh, from a, denser into an optically denser into a, an optically rarer medium, for example, from water into air, there's a point at which the angle of, of uh, incidence, when it, 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 it's steep enough, or not steep enough, but actually uh, oblique enough, that instead of penetrating into the, the second medium, it actually reflects, completely reflects off the interface. He didn't, he didn't recognize that.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Now, as we move further into the book, we move into a chapter on developments in the medieval Latin West. Um, now, you start us off here with some background on the translation movement and the evolution of visual theory from around 850 to 1150. The chapter is going to look at the profound effect on the Latin West of newly translated sources in the 12th and 13th centuries. And you're showing here that both Arabic based and Latin models of vision were ultimately based on, as you put it, the same late antique tradition of Platonized Aristotelian psychology and epistemology. So among other really interesting things that are happening here is that you're showing that some of these newly translated sources are really contributing to a particular model of perception and cognition. And this idea of perception uh, becomes really important. Now, the, set, the one section of the chapter looks very closely at a group that you called the Perspectivists. So to set us up for what's happening um, a little bit later, can you introduce um, what this means? So who are the Perspectivists, and why are they important um, to the story that you're telling at this point in the book?
1: Oh, sure, of course. But let me start by saying that, that one point I, I, I really wanted to stress in that chapter from 850 to 1150 <laughs> is that... All of the intellectual impulses, all of the sources, uh, all of the ideas are coming, are they're indigenous. They're not, I mean, they're indigenous uh, admittedly on the basis of things like the partial translation of Plato's Timaeus, Macrobius, you know, the various encyclopedic uh, uh, treatments. But they're developing it on their own. They do not have Aristotle. They don't have, really don't have any Plato, not that they got any Plato after the First Translation Movement. They don't have any of the the, uh, uh, mathematical sources. They have a little Euclid. They have no Apollonius conic sections. They have none of that. That comes in with the translations. One more argument that I want to stress on this is that That One of the reasons that they could actually adopt and adapt these translations, actually use them and assimilate them, is that they were already prepared for it. And that's why I talk about, you know, the two traditions springing from the same tradition, so that they were ready. It's not as though when they got these models that I'll talk about in a second, primarily, by the way, from Ibn Sina or Avicenna, that they weren't prepared to understand it because, in a sense, in a very vague way, they already had that model in mind. So what he did was crystallize in, in many ways. And what these, a lot of these sources that were translated uh, out, out of Arabic did was to crystallize uh, sort of vague thinking that was already uh, extant at the time. And that brings me to the perspectivists. When Ibn al-Haytham or al-Hassan's Day of was translated sometime around 1200, it took a while for it to be assimilated, but it was... We we have evidence that that there were people who had read it by, say, 1230, maybe 1240, (laughs) but by 1260, and probably a little bit earlier than that, it was very clearly and carefully read by Roger Bacon, Uh, and Roger Bacon uh, used it as a key source, not the only source, but a key source in his Perspectiva, which is Chapter 5 of his Opus Maius, in confecting what amounted to the same theory uh, that that, that uh, uh, our friend Ibn Al Haytham had proposed, but with lots and lots of Avicennian uh, overtones to it. So he meshed Avicenna and uh, 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 Ibn Al Haytham together to to make a really sophisticated uh, uh, model of of seeing, perceiving, and knowing uh, on the basis of mathematics and then the best psychology of the day so he was one of the first of the so-called perspectivists is called they're called that because their term for optics was perspectiva which shouldn't be confused with perspective as we know it from alberti in the renaissance and bacon is one uh, a guy named Vitello, a Polish uh, uh, thinker, is the second one. He wrote a thing called Perspectiva as well uh, around 1275. And then finally, uh, 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 John Peckham, who sometime around 1280, wrote a thing called Perspectiva Communis, which became a standard textbook in, as it were, college optics uh, throughout the Middle Ages and well into the Renaissance. So those are the perspectivists. They're basically... Uh, disciples, if you will, followers uh, of, of at least uh, uh, Ibn al-Haytham's or al hass theory.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Now, you talk um, in this chapter also about the importance of the work of Robert Gross-tests. Um Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so Robert Grosetest, some, some people would call him a perspectivist, the first, really, and some wouldn't. Uh, those who wouldn't uh, would argue that he didn't have the works of uh, Al Hassan that he had not gotten his hands on it. I argue that I think maybe he did, but I don't think he used it fully. Uh, but he was really important because he was he was an inspiration first of all for Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon was was a great admirer of him, and and he, his argument was that you can't understand anything about nature unless you understand it geometrically and mathematically. So that that that, that in a sense, because God Himself, I'm. I'm stretching things a bit here, but because God himself is a mathematician and worked mathematically in constructing the, the the universe, that's the only way that you can understand the universe. And by understanding the universe properly, of course, then you can really understand God and his his plans and how he works. So it's a it's a theological position and Roger Bacon's very clear that he follows that same theological bent.
0: Great. Now you talk um also in this chapter about the importance of the influence of these perspectivists in developing what you call optical literacy. So what is optical literacy? Can you talk a little bit about that concept?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I, I spend quite a lot of time, maybe not enough, talking about various roots of dissemination of optical ideas Uh and when I talk about optical literacy, what I mean is, I think the kind of literacy that most of us have about quantum mechanics, <laughs> which is pretty minimal. But you know, we, we hear about it. We you know, we're, we're we're we have many many sources where quantum mechanics ideas come up. We hear about quarks, etc. And I think that that's the same thing that's happening there. Sermons are a, a wonderful uh, a, a way in which. Optical knowledge or optical lore, and sometimes it's, it's not knowledge, it's, it's misperception, but that's okay. Ideas about optics, about how optics will work, uh, how it can, can explain everything, how it can produce miraculous things like, you know, images that look like they're hanging in the air when you look into a concave spherical mirror. All these kinds of things become part of the lore, and, and my argument in that chapter, to a great extent anyway, is that what that does is it kind of reinforces the idea that perspectiva, that this particular science with all of its mathematical accoutrements is, can explain anything. It's, it's, it's the perfect science, uh, even though they know nothing really in detail about it. And I, I use, Literature, for example, Chaucer talks about Vitolo and Alhasan uh, in in uh, I forgot which tale it is now. Uh, mirrors and and, and all of this kind of thing. It's in the Roman de la Rose, the uh, the French, the, the, the famous French by Jean de uh there's lots and lots about al Hassan. It's misperceived, by the way. They get it wrong, but that doesn't matter. Nonetheless, the name. It's like we talk about Albert Einstein as one of the greatest thinkers of all time, and virtually none of us knows anything about Albert Einstein or what he actually achieved.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, this is um, these issues are taken up really nicely in the seventh chapter, right, where you're looking at um, not just... Uh, optical motifs in literature, including Chaucer, as you've mentioned, including also Dante um, and preaching, right, sermons that dealt with optical topics, but also teaching, right, more broadly. And you talk a little bit about the dissemination of optics as a discipline in the arts curriculum of late medieval universities. Now, I know the kind of the sources on which we can base our knowledge of this teaching, you know, what was actually experienced by students, how these uh, textbooks were actually used, are you have to be kind of creative in your use of these sources, right, to, to be able to come up with a picture of this, and that's one of the really interesting things about this chapter. But can you talk a little bit about that? How was optics taught in medieval universities, and, and what's most striking to you about that element of this story?
1: Well, to me, what's most striking is how little we know. Mm-hmm. Um we do have some lectures, they, and these are late medieval, and they come in the form of what are called quaestiones or questions. Uh, it's a particular way of teaching in which you don't teach the subject as a whole, and usually when you get into that this level of teaching, you're at a very high level. You're way beyond just the rudiments. You know, you've just learned basic optics. So what, what they do is they'll take certain key issues in optics, and they will examine them as closely as possible in a typically scholastic way. Now, that doesn't tell us how, how the audience for that particular style of teaching, which is really at a, at a very high level, it's the way that theology, for example, would be taught. Uh, it doesn't tell us how the students were introduced to the subject to know enough optics to be able to follow these rather recondite, Sorts of uh, uh, discussions of very very particular uh, issues in optics, so we don't really know much. I don't think anyway. I I, I know of no source that can tell us exactly how uh, optics would be taught. And moreover, the issue, the, the, a second issue that comes up is whether it was taught as a mathematical subject, because we know that it was sometimes included in the uh, statutes in the universities that. For example, instead of Euclid, you could teach Vitello's Perspectiva, the first book of which is, is is nothing but mathematics. It's not really optics at all. And if, if you're using optical sources only to teach mathematics, then the question is, well, how much optics do you really learn from it? On the other hand, if you use optical sources to teach mathematics and, and you're using something like Roger Bacon, which they probably didn't, then you wouldn't learn very much mathematics because he wasn't a particularly good mathematician. Uh Worse is, or worst, I should say, is, is John Peckham, and we know he was used fairly extensively and probably at a low level. The mathematics is pretty primitive. I don't mean it's wrong, but it's very simple and simplistic, and the optics, you know, goes right along with it. So it would be a wonderful way to at least learn basic optics, pretty much the way, for example, you could learn the basics of astronomy through Sacrobosco's sphere.
0: Thank you. Now the chapter also, and I won't ask you to talk too much about this so that we can move on to Kepler right But this chapter also um, talks about, as you briefly mentioned before, linear perspective, the use of mirrors. It talks about Leonardo. And it ends by um, speculating as well on or rather reconsidering the thesis that was um, that has received a lot of press by Hockney and Falco on the use of optical aids by 15th century Flemish painters. So there's some really interesting engagement in the end of that chapter on that Hockney thesis as well. So as we move into chapter 8, we move into the chapter that really takes us into the Keplerian turn. Here we have Kepler, and you also give us the technical background, the background um, that man- or that sort of formed the context of this turn that was very much rooted in technological, social, and cultural changes from the mid-15th century to 1600. Now, you talk here about um, the importance of printing and print technology, but you also talk really, really fascinatingly, I thought, this is one of my favorite parts of the book, about glass technology, um, development of glass technology, and how that's really shaping optics in this period. So can you talk about that a little bit? Specifically, what were some of the ramifications of um, widespread availability of lenses, for example, and uh, high-quality mirrors for optical studies at this time?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the key things that happened, in, uh, at least by the middle of the 15th century and probably or even earlier, uh, was the development of what's called what they called crystal glass in venice uh and this was prized for its its clarity uh it, it, glass up to that point had always been kind of cloudy uh you know n- n- not terribly good quality but because of the various uh, sources well for the nitrate uh uh, uh the potash they used in, in, in doing the glass, a particular kind, etc. they had a formula for producing really clear glass, and that made a vast difference. Uh, for example, in the eyeglass industry, and by this time it really was an industry, the best glasses, and even really with crystal glass, still the best glasses would have been quartz. Uh, uh, you know, very, very clear quartz. But those are very expensive to do. They take a lot of grinding, they take a lot of polishing, whereas you could could crank out good glass blanks, you know, at at a great rate. And they were doing this by this, well, the 16th century, certainly, in Nuremberg. Uh, And then you could, you know, basically grind them down and polish them down to adequate for for glasses. And by the Middle of the fifteenth century, anyway, they were they were producing glasses in Florence, almost to prescription for uh, for example for presbyopia or farsightedness. They were they were doing it for in five five year increments of age from thirty to seventy, mm-hmm. uh, and they had two uh, levels in terms of strength for myopia using concave lenses. So my and mirrors, of course, were far better because they learned how to to back them uh, uh, more clearly when they well, they had a mercury tin sort of amalgam they used uh, that that allowed for good backing, not just for convex but also for concave uh, 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 mirrors. So they had a far better technology and the results were far better. And that meant that people were exposed to the phenomena everybody saw these things whereas you know it was only the few experts who actually managed to see all these optical optical phenomena like the appearance of images hanging in the air or by this time, you know, the fact that concave spherical mirrors will actually project real images onto a screen, or that you can do the same thing with convex lenses, all of these kinds of things start to come to the fore, and they present anomalies because they're not really well explained in the perspective of a theory. It doesn't explain them because it doesn't, ex- it, it, it doesn't anticipate them. In fact, these kinds of images, real images, are kind of contrary to everything that the perspectivist theory would would lead you to believe could exist. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, this is the context in which Kepler's um, analysis of retinal imaging is coming into play. And Kepler's ideas here, as you describe them in this chapter, are really challenging this perspectivist paradigm. And um, you describe the ways in which the perspectivist paradigm had subordinated light theory to cite theory, and, and Kepler actually did the opposite. So since it's such an important um, kind of turning point for the book, can you talk about that a little bit? What were some of the most important ways that Kepler, in this context you've been describing, is overturning perspectivist theory? Um, and, and what are some of the most important things we need to understand about that?
1: Well, c- uh, simply put, and this is very simply put kepler 's theory uh, uh mathematically, what it allowed for was that all incoming light when it when it comes into th- through the cornea and 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 into the uh, pupil and through the pupil and hits the lens it 's refracted at the lens, whereas before that point everybody thought that the light came in and made impressions on the front of the lens, which was activated by visual spirit from the brain and was sensitized by that to Take these impressions visually, so that the first the, the first point of really s- real seeing occurs at the front of the lens when it when it takes on these impressions of luminous color striking it from outside. Uh, Kepler said no. What happens is this stuff comes in, it's refracted through the lens, and he showed in detail how the lens would do that, uh, and it's brought to focal points or or points, fo- false focal points, depending on where on the retina. Um, and each one of those things then is, it paints, literally paints. And he uses the term pictura, which means painting. It paints itself on the retina. And what you then get is little daubs of color that are reflections of, well, they're refractions really of uh, the actual colors that are out there. So you get a picture, literally a picture painted on the, on the retina of what's on the outside. The problem with that picture is twofold. One, it's too big to go into the hollow optic nerve whereas previous theory assumed that after it hit the lens It would be optically, all of those impressions would be optically sent through the lens, refracted out into the vitreous humor of the eye, and would send kind of an image right into the hollow optic nerve. By Kepler's time, they were pretty sure the optic nerve wasn't hollow, so that was a problem. And the other thing is the image was way too big to fit into the optic nerve. And then the third problem is that it was upside down. It was inverted. And we don't see things inverted. And that was always a problem that, that you know, people like, uh, uh, well, for example, uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was very, very clearly, uh, 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 he was in, he had lots of problems with that. He had various theories, you know, ways of trying to figure out how this, the eye worked. And some of them involved uh, the the inversion of the image, but then he knew that it had to be reinverted. And our friend Kepler actually says that he was in anguish about that for a long time, he re- he tried everything he could to reinvert the image to make it right side up so that we would see it correctly, and then finally gave up on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Now, by the seventeenth century, and as of the late seventeenth century, as the final chapter of the book um, takes us into, the Kepler turn, the Keplerian turn, and its consequences were firmly rooted. So, how did that happen, and why did it happen so quickly?
1: Well, that's a, actually, that's a really good question, because it seems as though everyone, or a lot of people, were, were I- immediately receptive of, of Kepler's theory. They said, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Now, they had problems with it, they, because they saw the implications I was talking about. If, if In the old theory you would have species passing into and through the eye, into the brain, et cetera. And you had all this wonderful, wonderfully sort of uh, uh, choreographed system for how these images can get from the air into the eye, through the eye into the brain, so that the brain can delictate on them, can make sense of them, can cognize them, can grasp uh, implications from them, et cetera. But with, with Kepler... He's basically saying, "Look, this image. I don't know what happens afterwards. I mean, but that's not my problem. That's your problem." He says to the natural philosophers, "We opticians, all we need to worry about is how to get it to the retina." People, people said, "Yeah, I agree. It's, it, it's very clearly painting a picture on the retina." But then they had to find some way of getting it back into the brain. They were still locked into that that idea that images somehow that we think in images, uh, but. Over the, over the 17th century, uh, people like Descartes, Descartes was instrumental in this, just basically poo-pooed the whole idea of, of images uh, and, uh, uh, you know, tried to provide an alternative on s- just mechanistic principles, you know, that it's just impulses and things like that and mechanistic uh, interactions, and that will explain everything. Of course, it doesn't because ultimately, you know, it still doesn't tell you how you see as, as you see in a group know, perception way, why red is red. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's angstrom units or, you know, some some rotational speed as he had it of, of these ether particles that he, he relied on. Uh, and it is rather amazing that it that it took root so fast that, that people were really willing to accept it. Although when I say fast I'm talking about sixty years or so. I mean the scholastics, the neo scholastics in that period still clung desperately to these images or species, etc.
0: Now you talk um, also in this chapter about the importance of the use and development of telescope and microscopic technology in the 17th century, and you talk about the ways um, that these new technologies or the, the developments in these technologies spurred new theories of light and new theories of color. So can you talk maybe a little bit about that as we come to the close of the book and move toward the close of our conversation? Um, what are some of the important ways that microscopes and telescope technology were shaping new theories of light and or of color?
1: Well, I think I prefer color but light too because, of course, uh, since they depend on lenses and since lenses, you know, create two problems, one is called spherical aberration, uh, which... Uh, means that, that when they bring things to a focus, they, the focus isn't a point. It's a kind of an area. Uh, and that's a problem, you know, that's a problem that, that any of these, these things have because uh, uh, it causes the image to blur, of course, a bit anyway. And the other problem is what's called uh, uh, chromatic aberration, and that's a prismatic effect. Uh, The prismatic effect is interesting because that's essentially what happens with a rainbow, and Descartes was one of the first, but not the only, to kind of recognize that the colors of the rainbow are actually colors. It's not as though there's such a thing as color that subsists in objects, and then there's these fake colors. To him, color is color when you see it as color, period. Or to put it another way, coloring is, you know, the thing that causes you to see color. And it doesn't matter whether it's an object or a cloud or whatever. Uh, And all of that, of course, leads to our friend Newton, who, when he realizes that the prismatic effect that is breaking down white light into the spectrum is not a modification of white light, but rather that each one of those colors is a self-subsisting entity, as it were, and that white light is nothing more than the composite of all of these colors that suddenly, you know, there's a, well, not suddenly, but there's a significant change in in the understanding of light to particulate theory, that is, light consists of particles. Ultimately, it becomes waves later on. Uh, This was only being kind of brooded uh, in the in the earlier period, uh, for example, Descartes, who thinks they're impulses that act as though they're particles in, in motion, but only towards the latter part of the 17th century, it's pretty well accepted that light is somehow either particles in motion, actually through space, or due to particles in motion uh, through space. And that's a Total, totally different model of light from the physics of light from what went before, when light was considered to be a qualitative effect uh, subsisting in a transparent medium that provides the subject for the formal objects, so to speak, of the color. Great.
0: Now, one of the final things that you talk about here in the book is um, a concretization of concerns that we see throughout the book, and this is a concern with the epistemological consequences of some of these turns and transformations. So maybe the last question that I'll ask you before we come to our conclusion is to talk a little bit about that. Um, Were there any major epistemological consequences of this um, Keplerian turn and the kind of new dominance of um, Kepler's ideas that um, seem particularly important to you that you'd want to mention for us?
1: Well, sure, I mean by by uh, uh, reducing light to simply mechanical effects light and color to to mechanical effects of one kind or another or particles or whatever, then you have the the images are gone i mean there 's no way to talk about images anywhere and there 's no way to talk about color color doesn 't exist in anything because uh, it 's just a mechanical effect. Uh, So the whole idea that when I see a blue book, that the blue is there in the book, well, it's not there in the book. It's in my head, and it's only in my head. What it is physically is, you know, some number of angstrom units or particles of a particular size that are reflected, whereas others are absorbed, you name it, you know, giving it a sort of modern twist. So then the question is, well, what's the correlation between all of that mechanistic stuff and the blue in my head? And, of course, for, for, for Descartes, the answer is, well, you know, the blue in your head is really, you know, that's, that's the race cogitons and, and that's a little separate from the race extensa, which is your body and the brain and the pineal gland, which is affected by blah, blah, blah. Uh, so you never can make the twain meet. Whereas before... In the medieval theory, at least, the idea was that the, the blue in your head is a replica in some way or another. It's a similitude, or it's like the actual blue out there. It's bluish in some way. Uh, now, of course, you can't say that. And, yeah, I think that's a pretty significant epistemological uh, consequence. And it's it's a consequence that, you know, is is, is It's disturbing in some ways, and yet it was one that everybody was pretty well willing to take by the end of the 17th century and well into the 18th.
0: So, Mark, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me about what's an extraordinarily rich book. Now, we didn't even scratch the surface of all the things that are going on in these nine chapters, but um, given that, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close?
1: (sighs) No, I can't think of anything. Okay.
0: So now that the book is out and congratulations on, what's I think a magisterial book, what's next for you? Are there any projects that you're currently inspired by?
1: Well, actually, yes, I'm working on a translation of Gian Battista della Porta's uh, De refractione, which was published in 1593, which I would have liked to have I would like to have had it be a source for Kepler. And Kepler actually tried to get his hands on it and said he couldn't. But Giabattista Battista della Porta, I think, was a fairly important, uh, well, uh, representative, if you will, of optics as it, as it sort of was, existed and was understood just before Kepler came along. Uh, it, it, he started his optical work around 1600 when he was working with Tico Brahe, uh, so it's a kind of a state of the art message I, I, I take his de refracti to be, uh, and it's a very interesting book because uh, uh, Giambattista della Porta was a very interesting guy. He was a, a bit of an impresario, uh, and he's been—I think—he's gotten kind of bad press from people like Dave Lindbergh, uh, uh, unfairly. So I kind of like to, in part, restore him to some some level of uh, uh, respectability on the one hand, and on the other. Uh, He has lots of interesting things in this book, stuff about why the pupil dilates, all kinds of things that just nobody, to my knowledge, had ever really discussed before this.
0: Hmm. Well, that sounds great. So best of luck with that project. Um, And thank you again very much for making time to talk with me. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for listening, as always, and we will see you soon.